everyone. Welcome everybody to episode 22 of Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Jocelyn. We're, I'm here again this week with Bill Rogio. Bill, say hi to the audience. Hi, everyone. Bill and I are recording this via Zoom as usual, and our buddy Phil Hegseth, who's doing our IT stuff for us, is uh, listening in. So if you hear me reference him, that's why I'm, I'm doing that, because I'm talking to somebody who's, who's here. He's not our imaginary friend. But speaking of imaginary friends, we're going to talk this week a little bit about conspiracy theories and how they're spreading online and that sort of trend and how that intersects with the world of jihadism. Um, but before we dive into some of these topics, um, Phil uh, is constantly after me to basically get you guys to go online on the Apple Podcasts and to give us a five-star rating. That would be wonderful if you did that. Right now, I'm told we're at about 93. Again, I don't even actually check any of this stuff, so I'm, I'm told we're at 93 five-star ratings, and then getting over 100 because it's a nice round number and everybody loves hundreds of stuff. Uh, you know, If we get over 100, that'd be great. So if you're listening to our, our podcast and you enjoy it and give us a five-star rating, that'd be wonderful. Go uh, give us that, that rating. Um, and we're counting on you guys to be an informed audience, an intelligent audience, and a logical audience. And that's the opposite of the types of folks we're going to be talking about today. Because today we're going to be talking a little bit about conspiracy theories. And the way this started was the State Department's Global Engagement Center put out a report uh, concerning seven Russian proxy sites early this month and sort of how these proxy sites are spreading or are instigating sort of anti-Americanism and spreading anti-American conspiracy theories online and sort of agitating against American interests. Um, I read through the report uh, pretty carefully and I looked at the sites, some of the sites I was already aware of. Um, I don't, I don't, didn't find the argument in the report very convincing that these sites are having a measurable effect or, or a big effect on the public discourse. Um, if you look at the traffic numbers for these sites, they're pretty small, they're small potatoes. Um, you know, and, and I think that most people, if you looked at them, you'd say, well, what is this? You know, I don't, I don't really have to waste any time on this. And beyond that, I don't think these sites are really pushing a lot of stuff into the mainstream media. You know, one of the bigger websites on this list in the State Department's report is a website called Global Research. Um, I've been familiar with that website for years because, and from the people that run it, because um, they traffic in 9-11 conspiracy theories and 9-11 trutherism. And I haven't spent a lot of time in the public sphere combating that because I do find it crazy. And it's, you know, it's very difficult to um, combat that type of crazy. You know, it reminds me of an old quote from a movie. Or do they teach you to talk like this in some Panama City sailor want a hump hump bar? Or is this getaway day and your last shot at his whiskey? Sell crazy someplace else. We're all stocked up here. And that's sort of how I, I view that. That's sort of how I view 9-11 trutherism. But, you know, the bottom line is this stuff is still salient to a certain degree online. And, in fact, we saw um, just this week a, uh, a Republican in Georgia. Um, actually, she, she won the nomination, the Republican nomination for a congressional seat there, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene. And she's dabbled in these conspiracy theories before in her past. She actually questioned whether or not a plane even hit the Pentagon on 9-11, saying there was, claiming at one point that there was no evidence that a plane had hit uh, the Pentagon 9-11. Bill, I remember the video of the plane hitting the Pentagon. I don't see why this anybody would even be saying something like this. Right, Bill? Yeah, I I, I got to tell you, of all the 9-11, I'm not sure which one's my favorite, but the plane not hitting the Pentagon, I'm just wondering how the hell... Especially because we have Just, images of yeah. the plane hitting the Pentagon, hitting the right? Pentagon. Yeah, right? I, I, so you got to be, as you said, a whole lot of crazy to to pick up on these conspiracy theories. Um, you know, like 
my other favorite is the building could the steel in the building couldn't possibly melt. And I just maybe yeah. you might need to do a little research on that. Yeah, you don't excuse need to me. Do when much. two when two giant planes filled with fuel are rammed into two giant buildings, creating massive fires. Excuse me, but I think a whole lot of melting is going to occur. It doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that this is not not that difficult to figure out how this could this could go down. But yeah, this this nine eleven sort of conspiracy theories of trutherism. You know, this stuff exists online. We've seen it throughout all the years we've been doing this, right, Bill? You've seen this stuff. You've seen this stuff on yeah. social media and elsewhere. We've seen it in some of the comments at Longword Journal even. You know, I years ago I wrote up um, part of Nazar al-Wahashi. He was the former aide-de-camp to Osama bin Laden. And posthumously, al-Qaeda uh, pu- started publishing a series from Wahashi explaining sort of the 9-11, the thinking behind 9-11 on al-Qaeda's behalf. And, you know, it was... I mean, first of all, you have plenty of evidence before that that Al-Qaeda was responsible. But I remember some of the comments I got on that piece from people like, well, how do you know that Waheshi actually wrote this or said this? I mean, I'm like, what? So Al-Qaeda now, you know, Al-Qaeda's what? You know, covering up for the CIA or something? I mean, this isn't even a logical sort of theory. Um, you know, but this type of stuff is out there. And, you know, there's, there's probably, I would say there's probably the amount of this stuff, regardless of my skepticism regarding the efficacy of Russian disinformation, I think this stuff's probably growing. You know, that, that, that congressional nominee I was talking about who's running that race in Georgia, she has also dabbled in QAnon, which is also this just absolutely noxious conspiracy theory about, you know, uh, how Washington works. You and I have plenty of problems with how Washington <laughs> yeah, works, yeah, but right. folks- We don't need to if, introduce insane no, I, conspiracy theories to understand. Yeah, you don't need uh, Q to explain the corruption and rot in Washington, right? I mean, there's a lot of problems in Washington. I don't need some, you know, mythical Q to explain this, you know? Uh, and so, you know, a lot of times, you know, I, I'm reminded as we started diving into this topic, Christopher Hitchens, the deceased Christopher Hitchens, used to emphasize the fact that uh, humans, homo sapiens, are pattern-seeking ma- mammals, that our brains are sort of hardwired to find patterns in the world because that's what helps us make sense of it, helps us make sense of what's going on around us. And then and from an evolutionary perspective, that has a lot of advantages um, in terms of, you know, you, when you think back to our earliest iterations of our species, you know, finding things that we can eat, things that are poisonous, things that are not poisonous, things that are beneficial for us, things that are not. So that sort of learning process and finding these basic patterns and rhythms in life sort of help our species survive and grow and spread over time. But the sort of the pattern-seeking part of our brains can can kind of run amok, you know. And basically, people that don't want to take the time or don't have the time to look into different issues, and they just want to sort of see a pattern where there is none. They want to sort of have some sort of organizing framework for uh, world events, for a world that can be chaotic and and confusing and violent and scary. And these types of theories can sort of simplify things for people, for the true believers, and they sort of it sort of gives them an explanation for how the world works. You know, and I remember, you know, Bill, we were talking before we got got on. You said something about how you were explaining to one of your daughters the difference between conspiracy theories and conspiracies. Maybe share some of those thoughts because I think that sort of maybe there's a congressional candidate or two who could use that thinking right now to use that lecture. (laughs) Yeah, certainly. And, you know, it goes to the look and this is something that since the advent of the Internet, I think, is really um, blossom. I remember reading first being introduced to some of the more crazier conspiracy theories and uh, the late 1990s when getting on the internet and the moon landing and alien abductions and things. And I was just kind of like reading it as a lark. But now it's become, you know, that was fine when the internet was something for adults to look at when they're at their computers. But now, uh, you know, your kids are looking at this. And I remember my one daughter was looking at this and, you know, it's probably in her early, early teens, right? 
and uh, was kind of curious about conspiracy theories. So I had to explain to her, you know, look, there's conspiracies happen. You know, we could point to them in history. I mean, there's actual uh, criminal charges for conspiracy. They exist. And um, the, but the difference, you know, there's there's logic behind them. The conspiracy theories tend to be just completely off the wall. They tend to um, just, you know, there, there's not much. That, that's what always gets me about this. You know, we mentioned, Tom, that you're talking, looking for pattern seeking, but it's like pattern seeking. As I think you even said this, gone amok. It's just it's the opposite of logic when you put these. It's attempt to, to simplify um complex conspiracies that might or, or complex events as you said and so it was took a little time for me to, to talk to my daughter about this to explain the difference you know explain what Occam's razor is you know the simplest explanation is more likely more likely the uh, the um, the actual explanation that a lot of these conspiracy theories require such you know if they're if they're so secretive if they're so pervasive then why does everyone know about all of the greatest conspiracies out there yeah, and you know it's it's one of the, f- the funnier aspects of this is that, th- that probably the most successful conspiracies in the history of humanity we don't know about, right? Because that's right. that's why they're successful. Yeah, uh, that's exactly. that's why that's what makes the real conspiracy work. But you know, to connect this back to the topic of this podcast and the topic of our work and what we've done all these years, um, as I see these you know these Russian proxy sites spreading 9/11 conspiracy theories and other sites spread this type of stuff, I'm reminded that Osama bin Laden, you could see in the files captured in his compound, he was he was mildly or not so mildly perturbed by the fact that people were, were trying to take away al-Qaeda's credit for 9-11 that he basically was upset that there were everybody you know how can anybody believe this you know we did this you know what do you you know what's wrong with you people uh you know Tom, Tom on, on that point isn't there if I correct me if I'm wrong I remember watching a video with him and I believe it was a Kuwaiti um uh cleric and they were sitting down talking about 9-11 and how he talked about how if they could kill 30,000, 300,000, or 3 million, he would have done it, but they was happy with the results of 9-11. What, is, am I wrong about that? Uh, there, you know, there's, there's a the, video out there. I remember yeah, seeing that Yeah, there's multiple CNN. pieces of evidence of Bin Laden talking about this. I think it's yeah, it's you, know, and you can see You can see multiple times he gets into it. But you know, the thing about, about the conspiracy that would have to be – the guy admits right. to it. The guy's the head right. of al-Qaeda. But then al-Qaeda didn't do it. So what was that? Uh, well, the other, was- the other part of the 9-11 conspiracy theory was, you know, if you think about our contested political system here in the U.S., you know, let's say, you know, the Bush administration really did this for some nefarious reason, which is absolutely insanely <laughs> offensive, right? But let's just say that the Bush administration did this, which is one version of it, to justify wars overseas or something like that. You don't think the Democrats would have taken advantage of that in 2004 and seized upon any real evidence of that to defeat Bush and send him off to jail forevermore? And to he would have been he'd be in a, a prison of the Guantanamos of Guantanamos at this point in terms of maximum security prisons. I mean, it's it's ludicrous on its face that in our society that something like that would get 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 out would basically happen. And political rivals wouldn't take advantage of it. I mean, certainly John Kerry in 2004 went after Bush in every way he could have, you know. And there were some, there were some dabbling in this stuff with the you know, Fahrenheit 9/11 and other things that, that took place at that point, which was sort of inexcusable. I think some of this, you know, they, they, the Bush administration sort of knew something beforehand. You know, I, I find all that to be very, um, 
stupid. I mean, you look back at the, the PDB from 2001, August 6, 2001, which was warning that Bin Laden was determined to strike in the U.S. It didn't have any specific details about something like this. You know, I, does, should the Bush administration have taken the Al-Qaeda threat more seriously? Absolutely. Should they have done more to sort of be on top of it? Sure. You know, uh, but the idea that they sort of knew something big like this was coming, it's just not, not the case. And the other thing is, is that, you know, when you look back you know, it's easy, you know, as the cliche expression, it goes, 2020 is always hindsight. And going back through this, you can say, well, you, you missed these certain details that form a real pattern leading up to the event. The thing is, is that there are all sorts of details like that are facts that don't actually lead up to anything as well in other, in other ways. And when you look back at the history of Al-Qaeda's plotting and jihadist plotting against the U.S., there's so many thwarted, failed plots. It gets very difficult to figure out what actually got to a serious level and which wasn't, you know, which is sort of looking at all this. But it also reminded me, Bill, you know, this is one of the things you, you've, we've certainly, both of us have come across numerous times. And this is the interesting twist in this story is that in terms of conspiracy thinking, Osama bin Laden was a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. You know, Al-Qaeda is, to a large degree, founded on a conspiracy theory. Modern jihadism is. And that conspiracy theory is this idea that there's this crusader Zionist, Zionist crusader alliance that's conspiring against Muslims at all times. And if you just have just a cursory knowledge of modern history the last, you know, 45, 50 years, let's say, you know that ain't true. That's certainly not even close to true. You know, I mean, it, the, the ultimate irony there is that the U.S. backed the Mujahideen in Afghanistan against the Soviets, uh, an effort that was certainly pro-Muslim or on the side of the Muslims in that conflict, and actually were down to the benefit of the jihadis, you know, and it's something that Jalalan and Akani and bin Laden and others didn't give, didn't, even though Akani's benefit from American support, you know, the, the jihadists didn't want to give America any credit for that, you know, and just show that they basically have to twist history. And so you can point to other examples, you know, ejecting Saddam Hussein from Kuwait, you know, and, and preventing Saddam Hussein from marching on Saudi Arabia. Again, the U.S. didn't get any credit from that in jihadi circles. Instead, it was all sort of part of some conspiracy to, to basically justify U.S. intervention. Um, you know, Bosnia and Herzegovina, you know, another clear example where, you know, the U.S. intervened on the side of local Muslims. And, and by the way, in that, in that conflict, Bin Laden had to come up with a conspiracy theory for, you know, the U.S. delayed arms to make sure more Muslims were killed or something like that. I mean, he had to come up with all sorts of conspiracy theories that way. But the bottom line is that this type of conspiracy, so even though you and I rightfully so deride this type of thinking and are dismissive of it in terms of the logic of it, it does have a disturbing impact on the world because you can see, you know, with modern jihadism, you can see a, a distinct conspiracy theory element to it. And you can see, you know, in terms of how they view the world and how they organize the world to justify their jihad and what they're trying to do in their terrorism. Um, so this type of stuff isn't going to go away anytime soon. It's a big problem. I was wondering if you had any thoughts about the role that conspiracy theory thinking plays in jihadi world. I mean, I, you know, I, to me, it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a part of this. I don't think American leaders have really communicated really that often that this is the way these guys view, view things. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think we, you know, as you noted, I mean, the, it, it, it really all is founded on one big conspiracy that the United States the Amer or the West is out to annihilate the, the Muslim world. And I think that all of our interactions, I mean, you could argue at times U.S. is pro-Israel versus against the Palestinian cause or whatnot. But even the United States, France and Britain um, sided with the Egyptians against the Israelis in the Suez Canal crisis. I mean, for goodness sake, it, that, you know, you have, you know, we can sit here, we have, there's numerous instances where, 
you know, who did the when the Gaddafi regime was overthrown, who did the United States support in Libya? So the I find I just, you know, Tom, I, I'm just going to admit, I just talking about these things, I'm, I'm always at a loss for words. It's, to me, some of these things seem so stupid that I'm, it almost insults my intelligence to have to discuss an actual conspiracy theory. I mean, it's like it's like when we I remember earlier in a previous episode we had to talk about was the Islamic State or Al Qaeda in Iraq really part of Al Qaeda before uh, Zawahiri ejected it? It's such a stupid thing. Of course it was. I mean, all the evidence is there to back it up. And yet here we are, we still have to do things like discuss why conspiracy theories are, are stupid. And, um, but, you know, as far as <clears throat> to get back to your initial question about, um, you know, the jihadist use of conspiracy theories, I mean, we've seen this in things like, um, uh, uh, oh God, I'm dr- 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 losing his name. The American, um, uh, who uh, Adam, right? Uh, Adam Gadon, yeah. Adam Gadon, that's right. Uh, who he he repeated conspiracy theories constantly in his statements. He would talk about uh, you know race conspiracies in the United yep. States. It was almost like it was like it was like they picked the stupidest person on the planet because he was an American and could speak English and get on a camera. And he'd spout off conspiracy after conspiracy. I think Al Qaeda has actually improved on that front a lot. But even even today, you have things like the Taliban, one of my our favorite conspiracies that is ongoing right now with the Taliban. They accuse the United States and the Afghan government of backing the Islamic State to um, to fight against the Taliban um, and kill also can kill civilians. I mean, just think about that. We're going. We're in the U.S. Con- uh, signed a deal with the Taliban. And part of that is to rely on the Taliban as an effective counterterrorism partner. And that so-called effective counterterrorism partner is spouting a conspiracy theory about how we're backing the Islamic State. So, yeah, I I just think that we're not going to see an end to conspiracy theories in our world or in the jihadist world anytime soon. You know, the the other thing about that conspiracy theory with the Taliban is that – you know, the, there is some evidence the U.S. at least looked the other way in eastern Afghanistan when the Taliban and al-Qaeda were mounting their offensive against ISIS, didn't launch airstrikes against the Taliban al-Qaeda right. positions to allow them to do that. And some U.S. military officials have said, you know, there was some sort of level of indirect support of some degree there to allow the Taliban and al-Qaeda to go after ISIS because the U.S. military wasn't going to defeat ISIS in eastern Afghanistan, so they wanted the jihadi rivals to go after him. So the irony there is that, or the, the twist there is that while the Taliban is blaming us or blaming the U.S. for sponsoring ISIS in Afghanistan, the U.S. is actually basically looking the other way and sort of saying, you know, that a boy, go get him, you know, and sort of yeah. happy happy to have the Taliban go do that work for us. Yeah, you know? or, and even uh, providing airstrikes against them. Sup- we- yeah, supposedly do that work for us, but you know, yeah. I know that the enemy of our enemy is not always our friend, you know. Exactly. And, and you know, um, I don't, this is actually one conspiracy that I don't think the Taliban actually believe it. I think they use this conspiracy as a propaganda point because enough of them have been on that theater in the, in the east, uh, in Nangahar. To see yeah, what's I, ISIS. ISIS also is one of those groups that is is always the subject of a conspiracy theories in the jihadi world. Much sure. more so than right. it's. Oh, you know, ISIS is always derivative of some other bad actor. It's never. This is sort of what you and I, you know, get a little annoyed at too, because you know, in Syria, ISIS was supposedly in cahoots with the Assad regime against the supposedly moderate opposition, 
and was basically working to discredit the opposition in the war. It was some bizarre, elaborate scheme in which, you know, Assad and ISIS didn't really fight, according to some pundits. And you and I know, look at that, and that that that's a theory that actually got a lot of salience, got got a lot of currency in Washington. And people were pitching. You and I were documenting ISIS and Assad fighting <laughs> yeah. each other at the time, thinking, "What the heck are you guys talking about?" They're fighting. By the way, that's part of the ISIS story in Syria right now. Is they're fighting right now as we're recording this in Syria to this day. Um, you know, ISIS captured oil and gas fields from the Assad regime. Those oil and gas fields were built and developed to serve civilian populations in the Assad-controlled territories, and so. It's sort of unsurprising that ISIS would turn around and sell that those natural resources back to the Assad regime that had originally owned them. But that was portrayed as, uh, other than be sort of this bizarre twist in this war, a, a war economy sort of functioning as, you know, this sort of sales were functioning as part of a war economy. Said, and by the way, ISIS sells oil to everybody uh, right. you know, in, in the area. But anyway... Um, so, but instead of being part of a war economy, that was portrayed as some scheme by Assad to stand up ISIS and give it funds to keep fighting and everything. And so it just becomes ISIS in particular. You could see the conspiratorial thinking around it in the West and elsewhere, even you know where this this type of thinking gained currency and it really didn't doesn't stand up to muster when you get going down get down to the facts. Yeah, I, I think that might have been one of the more frustrating theories, conspiracy theories over the past decade. I, you know, you had some supposed serious analysts pushing this. And, you know, it all stemmed from the desire to take out Assad at all costs instead of just making the case that, you know, he's a, a horrible actor. Wow, we all know that. But it just, you know, it, it was so maddening when we were documenting this. You would The Assad regime ex, um, expended significant resources to try to defend eastern Syria, those, that, those remote areas, towns like Palmyra, there was like key hubs, and they had some major bases out there that the Islamic State overran. And yet, uh, and we're executing Syrian soldiers, uh, you know, in on video, and yet somehow that was an, a, an, an Assad plot, an Assad conspiracy. And I guess that's why it makes it a conspiracy, because it's just well, it's a conspiracy so theory. There. Yeah, it makes it a conspiracy theory. Theory, correct. not a conspiracy. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. I mean, Assad would have to be absolutely, completely craven to do something like that. He's crazy, but he's not that crazy. Well, it also doesn't make any sense, right? It I doesn't mean, make the, sense. The, the, yeah. the point is, if you look this, back at like the provincial capitals that fell, the jihadis played a big role in the fall of Raqqa. You know, there was this theory that it was just a free Syrian army that captured Raqqa and then ISIS took it away from it. Well, no. If you go back to the whole history of Raqqa falling, you can see the jihadis, Nusrafran at the time, Aral Sham and others played a leading role in that battle. And you can see elsewhere in Raqqa that the, the predecessor to ISIS and then ISIS battle Assad's forces. Same story in Deir Azor, you know, where you can have the jihadis playing a large role. Of course, Idlib fell to a jihadi-led uh, coalition at the time by led by al-Nusra Front and its allies, which at the time was part of al-Qaeda. So if basically if Assad was playing this game, I'm going to, uh, you know, manipulate the jihadis to assert to discredit the rest of the opposition. It doesn't make any sense when you're, you're handing over territory to the jihadis and your biggest losses are coming to the jihadis. Um, yeah, and, so, and at, th at this point in time too, Tom, the, the Syri you know, people were questioning whether he was going to survive. I mean, he sure. had Damascus, some places in the south, west and, and places on the west coast he was i mean they were the jihadists were close to marching on damascus at that point in time and it was only the iranian and russian support which really turned things around particularly the russian involvement in um when used air force and, and advisors and even um russian paramilitaries yeah. uh, entering combat that's what turned the time i mean he he would have to be absolutely out of his skull to have 
to have had the Islamic State intentionally kill his soldiers, which Islamic State and Al Qaeda and other guys, you know, know, all these different groups. Yeah, I mean, none of this is defensive Assad. I mean, we you and I know the Assad. You and I know the Assad story well. I mean, you you were in Iraq when Assad was sending the Assad regime was sending jihadis across the border from Syria and Iraq to go after our guys, our troops, and go after Iraqis, suicide bombers. I mean, Assad was in fact in cahoots with the jihadis during that time, during the height of the Iraq War. Um, that's not a conspiracy theory. There's plenty of evidence along those lines. But as you said early on, and we documented early on, what happened was that pipeline, the tail of that pipeline, turned around and came back at Assad himself. Just as to his credit, General Petraeus warned Assad of that at the time. Yep. Said that, you did. know this is he said you know this is something that you're going to pay for eventually. You know that this thing is going to and it did. It ultimately turned against the Assad regime, the jihadis, you know ISIS and Al Qaeda and other affiliated groups ended up basically going after the Assad regime. Now, it doesn't mean there aren't, you know, sort of tactical things that you can see happen on the battlefield. There are. There are other things that happen in, in the meantime. But this idea, basically what we object to is this idea that Assad is sort of the Wizard of Oz, right? Behind, the man behind the curtain, you know, pulling the strings on ISIS, which was one of the, <clears throat> or on the earliest versions on Nuzafran, which is one of the earliest versions of the theory, which is just, just nonsense. Yeah, I mean, look, that raid, I believe, against Abu Ghadir, right, who was the head of that tail, that yep. tail network that was in East... Uh, Eastern Syria. I mean, we killed him in 2008, and that's when Petraeus made the warning and all of that. The Assad regime objected to the U.S. cross-border raid inside Syria to kill Abu Ghadida and others. And then, what, three, less than three years, those guys turned on him, turned on him like a rabid dog. But, you know, so the bottom line is that conspiracy thinking or sort of distilling it in term, this term, as you, you alluded to this, Bill, that the pattern seeking there is you had people that wanted to get rid of Assad and just and, and justify regime change, which is understandable morally. I mean, Assad is the is the, the worst actor in Syria. I mean, in terms of killing and everything else. Um, but you know that that becomes the default mode, and so then the pattern seeking mammal in us then goes and tries to cook the books basically on the Syrian war to say, well, it's all just about Assad. Get Assad, you know. And you know some of the worst some of the worst analysis we've seen sort of took off of Syria took off from that point. Um, you know, unfortunately, but we see other stuff like that too. You could see other, um, other sort of examples along uh, through time like that. But you know, one one of the interesting things about this all this too is you know the phrase I use I came up with called disconnecting the dots to describe sort of the prevalent thinking in counterterrorism circles on this stuff. And this is sort of the opposite of pattern seeking in which we had basically people just, you know, sort of describing Al Qaeda as loosely affiliated and there was no real cohesive network. And then, you know, you see some dabble with this idea with ISIS, despite the fact that there's all this evidence to this day that both maintain cohesive networks. And this is something we've we've sort of battled over time or combated over time because, you know, you can go too far into, you know, it's not a conspiracy theory to think, you know, when you see these groups saluting Ayman al-Zawahiri and before him Osama bin Laden around the globe, that maybe there's more to it than maybe they actually mean it. That maybe it isn't just rhetoric, maybe it isn't just words, that they actually are part of a cohesive network. Um, and But yet we've seen that in U.S. government circles, there was always this drive to disconnect the dots in terms of uh, doing this type of uh, analysis. And that's still a prevalent way of, of viewing things, I would say, right, Bill? I mean, you still come across that. You come across that on the Taliban Al-Qaeda. I mean, you know, there's yeah. no evidence, you know. So. Yep. Yeah, it's, you know, instead of, a, it's the opposite of disconnecting the dots would be either improperly connecting the dots or, or manufacturing dots to connect. I mean, I think that's what a conspiracy yep. is in these cases. And yeah, we, we unfortunately, you know, and the funny thing about the Assad thing too, well, nothing's funny about any of this, but <clears throat> look, it's, it's either either supposedly intelligence analysts actually believe this conspiracy theory that Assad 
stood up the Islamic State and all these jihadists, or they or they they cynically um, push the theory just to get their foreign policy goals. Neither speaks well to them. Either they're stupid or they're or they're oppor- they're jumping on a conspiracy theory for opportunistic means. And in the case of what we know with Afghanistan, the disconnect the dots on Al Qaeda and the Taliban and what the Taliban's goals are for Afghanistan, which is, of course, to establish the reestablish the Islamic Emirate. <coughs> in the case of that, um, that's intentional, right? The people are ignoring those linkages because they have a foreign policy goal of withdrawing from Afghanistan at all costs. So they'll ignore the facts to, to, to fit their policy. Yeah. And, you know, another example of this um i don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole because we're going to i keep teasing it we are going to do a a separate podcast on this but the issue of iran and al-qaeda right yeah in this relationship what's interesting about this is you and i me in particular i've been the subject of a a, sort of a a sort of a i would say a, a conspiracy theory of sorts that basically that we're only interested in this relationship to justify war with Iran or regime change with Iran. And this is only something coming from so-called neocons, of which neither you nor I are neocons, by the way. Neither one of us have ever have ever ascribed to being... Nope. I don't think you can look back at anything I've written or said, and if you think I'm a neocon, first of all, I don't think you can define neocon. Neocon itself has become a conspiratorial word, right? It's a stand-in, basically, for whatever you don't like in the foreign policy world that's uh, perceived to be interventionist, you know? So there's sort of this whole neocon, you know, view of things, um, which I think there are very few people who actually could be described as neocon these days. But in any event, you know, so neocon is a misabused, is abused word. It's a, it's a caricature. It's a conspiratorial word. Um, but there's this whole idea that neocons wanted to make up, just as they made up this idea that Saddam was in cahoots with al-Qaeda, they want to make up the idea that Iran's in cahoots with al-Qaeda to justify war. There, every link in that chain is broken. Every link in that, none of that is true. Um, you know, when it comes to Iran and al-Qaeda, um, you know, one of the things we always point out is that it was the Obama administration, even as President Obama was desperate to cut a deal with the Iranians, that documented um, Iran's collusion with al-Qaeda in a series of official terrorist designations. Both the Treasury Department and State Department came out with this official series of designations and statements documenting this. And I always point out that the, the backbone of what I say about this comes from those official U.S. government designations and statements and also comes from sources like the 9-11 Commission Report, District Court documents. That sort of thing, all official stuff, right? All in some cases, even Al Qaeda internal testimonies, you know, that kind of thing. All, you know, basically bedrock sources. Um, but you can see that there's this this drive in U.S. politics, in particular in policymaking circles in and around Washington. I know when I've when I've talked about Iran and Al Qaeda, there's always this snickering sort of conspiracy theory ascribed to it, as if I this is only about you know, uh, somehow, you know, justifying war with Iran. And of course, that's just bullshit, right? I mean, you and I know it's yeah. bullshit. If you actually listen to anything I say, you know, that that's not even close to true, you know? And, 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 and basically, it shows that people aren't really capable of dealing with facts or dealing with facts that contradict their biases, you know? Um, and, you know, it's interesting. I'm watching all this stuff. I watched the UN reporting uh, that's come out over the last couple of years. You and I have documented that and read through those reports. And you have both the UN and the State Department now talking about Saif al-Adil and Abu Muhammad al-Masri, having managerial, playing a managerial role within Al-Qaeda's global network from inside Iran. And those are just the latest examples of it. Um, you know, is the UN Security Council team of experts that's writing those reports, are they just trying to cook up a war with Iran? I mean, it's just all stupid, right? But this is this is the thing. It, it's sort of this 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 thinking, this conspiratorial thinking. What I'm, what I'm trying, this is a long-winded way of saying, 
it does impact things in ways that sort of you don't, you wouldn't expect, right? That people sort of yeah. inject this sort of conspiratorial way of viewing the world um, in in their own for their own political or policy making or ideological reasons. They they sort of paper over things that are maybe too complex for them to understand. Yeah, it, you know, or be, you know, again, back to get to their to get to their desire to the policy goal. I mean, t- and to be clear about you and I, I mean, I think we're both. Not, I don't think I know. Neither of us wants to start another war when we can't win ones we're currently involved with. I mean, we have very serious misgivings. Tom and I have very serious misgivings about um, the use of U.S. force overseas because of how poorly we've managed and executed the the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, in particular, but also in places like. Um, in Libya has been an absolute disaster. That doesn't mean we can't have a clear-eyed view on what the nature of the enemy is. Just because we're saying Al-Qaeda and Iran cooperate doesn't mean we're saying that the next step isn't we should go to war with Iran. It means we need to set our policy um, in line with the facts. That's all that you and I ever ask for. We're never, we don't advocate for war for any, you know, and I, yeah, I, I don't. F- I don't want to get. I don't want to get too far. Like I said, I want to get too far down this rabbit hole because I want to save it for this episode. Because yeah, I want. Sure. I want. I want to walk people through some of my experiences in this regard because it's sort. Of, I think it's kind of funny actually. Um, you know, I mean, there's yeah. this whole. Consp- there's, I mean, there's basically a conspiracy theory around our role in getting the Bin Laden files released that this was all about justifying war with Iran. Yeah, remember? I exactly. Mean, we'll, talk, we'll talk about that. This is all idiocy. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about it though because I think it's worth people understanding how stupid it really is. Uh, when you actually understand this stuff. Yeah. One of my uh, favorite conspiracies, Tom, is that we're um, paid agents of the Indians like, and the Israelis. Oh, the CIA and, one was and the, the CIA. I yeah, the CIA. And I'm always, like, where's yeah. my damn check? I just want my paychecks yeah, exactly. from these people. I guess I'm just working pro bono for the last 17 years. Yeah. Which, by the way, that's probably, uh, I'll say this, I'll say two things. One, um, I gamed the whole Iran Al-Qaeda stuff out. Again, I'm not going to belabor the point because we're going to do an episode on this, but all the way back in 2007, and you can see what I wrote about at the time. I said, "Look, there's a real issue here, folks. Whether you, you know, just read the 9/11 Commission report, and you know, there's a real issue here. Um, but if you if you go through these official sources, um, you know, there's, there's a real issue here. But I said, it, I wrote this now 13 years ago, more than 13 years ago. I said, look, this doesn't mean that we should go to war with Iran over this. I mean, I think a war with Iran would be disastrous because we don't know what we're doing. That was 2007. I mean, I had gained mm-hmm. all this out." back then, you know, way even before then, because I actually wrote that in 2006. It wasn't published in 2007. Um, so, you know, it's just it's just stupid. But this type of conspiratorial thinking, you know, still has, you know, currency. Uh, but the second thing I'll say is that um, when it comes to, you know, the fact that we're not paid by the CIA or the Indians, I'll inject, uh, once again here, I'm sure Phil's going to love this, uh, you know, we're going to actually ask you guys for money at some point for paying for the podcast <laughs> for other stuff and buying merchandise and everything else. And maybe we can come up with some funny conspiratorial, you know, T-shirt or something, you know, that uh, play off of this episode, um, you know, which is talking about, you know, the fact that we're, you know, look, we're just keeping our eyes on enemies and the jihadis, um, you know, really don't have any other motive than other just trying to figure out what the heck's going on. And that's, uh, you know, something to do in and of itself. You know, that, that's that's the point is that, you know, part of what I want to talk about in a future episode, too, is bifurcating sort of the way you view the world from what you want to do about it. Because a lot of times, if you can, you can become myopically obsessed yes. with something, you know, I think that's what happened with Iraq and Saddam Hussein. Some policymakers did become myopically obsessed with Saddam Hussein uh, to the point that they didn't see the rest of the picture, and that's what led to the Iraq War, you know. 
Um, and that and that doesn't mean there weren't any justifications for it. I don't agree with all the anti-war arguments, um, but you know you you got to be careful about how you view the world and how you view these things and and sort of what emphasis you put on it and figuring and and also understanding that what you want to do about something, you know, is a different issue from what actually is going on. You know, yes, the two are related, but there's not a one-for-one overlap. Um, and conspiracy theorists and conspiracy thinking doesn't allow for any of that nuance, right? I mean, it just basically wants to boil everything down in these very simplified narratives to understand the world and sort of just sort of paper over all the complexities and problems and and the the uncertainty that you have to deal with. Yeah, yeah. Look, facts and policy are two different things. I mean, you and I are all about the facts, and you know, you got. But if you can't get the facts right, you can't get the policy right, and that's this is all there is to it. Um, you just can't make, create facts in order to craft a policy. That's starting to, that's going down the conspiratorial. Well, no, we see, we see that, yeah. we see that, uh, quite often though, <laughs> you know, yeah, basically, basically I, I, people, people only are only looking at the facts that they think, uh, you know, sort of justify their policies. Um, but all right, I think that's enough on conspiracy theories. I mean, absolutely. Sort of off the cuff type of, uh conversation about this it's just something that sort of popped up on our radars for various reasons this this week so we thought we'd talk about it but let's get into something more concrete which is that the afghan government is releasing or is in the process of releasing these 400 taliban prisoners the, the remaining taliban prisoners that uh were sort of their release was negotiated by the u.s without the afghan government's consent as part of this february 29th withdrawal deal that was agreed to in doha and Bill, I know you've been tracking this and maybe give us some thoughts on what's going on here, what the Afghan government's doing and what they should be doing and how they're sort of, you know, what, what people are not thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to set the stage. So that that part of a big part of that deal in February is in, in order for the Taliban to negotiate with an intra-Afghan team, not the Afghan government, mind you, but an intra-Afghan negotiating team, which is very nebulous. It basically means elements of society and the government isn't going to um, dominate that side of the uh, the talks. It basically um, waters down the Afghan government's yeah, right. legitimacy it them, because it, from, it from the get go, it says to it, yeah, but, right. but not the not the main driver because the Taliban refuses to negotiate, directly negotiate. So before that had to happen, the Afghan government had to release five thousand Taliban prisoners in exchange for one thousand prisoners being held by the Taliban. Already an imbalanced deal, right? Um, so this is a deal, remember, that was signed by the Afghan government, not by the Afghan government, just by the U.S. and the Taliban. The Taliban refused to let the Afghan government, um, being a party to the deal. Um, well, Tom, I'm going to use this word, even though I think you're going to disagree with me. I think the Afghan government now has officially uh, cuckolded itself to the deal, the U.S. Taliban deal. Um, it has agreed to release all 5,000 of those prisoners. There was a you know, they released uh, 46,000 um, or 4,600, I'm sorry. And then there was a debate over the last 400. Um, the Afghan government called what they would, uh, called together a lawyer, Jirga, which is which is basically a grand council of Afghan notables. It's like cross section of society. By the way, that's what they want this negotiating team to, to look like. That's what the Taliban wants it to look like. 3,200 people gather to discuss the release of 400 Taliban prisoners. And they at the end of the meeting, they agreed. Um, they, they did officially cuckold themselves to that U.S. Taliban deal. And here's a breakdown. Now, you know, so there was a, there was some debate. I would just say, I would just say the, the Afghan government, uh, sort of, uh, 
basically became servile to the deal. Basically, okay, you know, servile. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. I mean, I, th- I think they're, they, they're raising the child of the U.S. Taliban negotiations. I think they, they basically. I think my word does work. They acquiesced to the, uh, you know, yeah. they gave into. Yes, they surrendered to yeah, the the terms of the deal. Is what I, I like my word better, Tom. I'm yeah, sorry. I, I'm gonna I, stick with it. It made me cringe a couple of times. But let's just do <laughs> let's just do surrendered and go from there. Okay. So. No way. And so there was a debate over who who were they? Right? Who were the, these 400? Why was this such a big issue? You had and then there in so Afghan. Um, News agencies was able to get information, and here's what they found out. They found 156 were sentenced to death. We weren't told why. 105 are accused of murder. 34 for kidnapping that led to murder, so basically accessory to murder via kidnapping. 51 drug smugglers. 44 of them are blacklisted by the Afghan government and and its allies, very likely the United States. And by the way, if you're uh, blacklisted by the U.S., there's usually some type of al-Qaeda tie related to that. Um, six accused. No, of other, no, no, of, no, 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 no. That well, cannot be. That cannot be. That's my conspiracy be. theory anyway, yeah, and I'll stick yeah. with it. Yeah, it's impossible. Um, that's impossible. Not even a, yeah, that's not yeah, even right. a theory. Yeah, but anyway. <laughs> six accused of other crimes and four accused of unspecified crimes. So whatever that means. So this is, seems to be the worst of the worst here. And uh, apparently one of those being talked about being released. Now he's in U.S. custody. So I think I'm not sure how he's, he came up with his name, Haji Bashar Narazi. He was a Taliban finance, financier and drug lord. The U.S. arrested him in uh, 2005. He may have been turned over to the Afghans. I'm not sure. It's a little fuzzy on that, where what his status is. So now the Afghan government, um, the head of the, the, the lawyer Jurger, um organizing committee, he claimed that there's no foreign individuals um, within those 400 Taliban prisoners. Um, he does note that uh, some were sentenced to death and, and whatnot. So, but here's what happens when the, the lawyer Jurga issues it, basically its recommendations. One of the things that they say about the 400 prisoners, this is a quote, they must be handed over to their countries with valid guarantees. Well, that would make them foreign fighters, right? If they're being ha- handed over to foreign countries. If there's no foreign foreigners involved in these 400, why is the, the lawyer Jurga saying, well, the ones that are foreign have to be handed over. So um, Kim Dozier notes that a lot of these in, in an article at Time, she notes that the, a lot of these are some of them. Yeah, there's some of them. Yeah, are are tied to Al Qaeda. That's probably getting back to those 44 who were on the blacklist. But some of them may also have other Al Qaeda. You don't have to be on the blacklist to be tied to Al Qaeda. Um, a while back, I remember documenting with the U.S. military uh, used to call dual hatted al-Qaeda Taliban commanders, and I don't believe any of those guys. Actually, one of them, the um, uh, Aminullah, Mul Aminullah, who's the head of the Taliban's uh, Peshawar uh, uh, Shura. He's a dual-hatted al-Qaeda and Taliban leader. He runs something called the Ganj Madrasa in Peshawar. It's an al-Qaeda training camp, and he supports the Taliban. He's the head of the Taliban's Peshawar Shura. So that's as dual-hatted as you get. But he's the only dual-hatted one that I know of that's been designated. So a bunch of them are out there. And by the um, way, you know the Taliban has has worked to get these dual-hatted guys freed in the past. So it was late 2019, for example. Uh, you'll remember that Abdul Rashid Baluch, who's a U.S.-designated Global terrorist, especially designated global terrorist. Somebody he was designated. He's a Taliban figure. He served as, a, according to the U.S. government's designation, he served as a Taliban liaison officer to Al Qaeda, and was responsible for planning meetings between the Taliban senior leadership and Al Qaeda members in Karachi, Pakistan. Uh, he 
is one of the uh, Taliban leaders or members. It was free in exchange for three Indian engineers who were kidnapped. Uh, and this exchange happened in 2019. So this is the type of, these are types of figures. This, this exchange happened even as the U.S. was talking to the Taliban, negotiating with them. The Taliban was still interested in getting these dual-hatted figures out or these sort of liaison figures out. So this is not something that's new. This is something that um, basically Ongoing. Is, yeah. yeah, unsurprising. But here's the point, right? We don't have a list of all these guys, so we don't even know the names of all these individuals who put out or biographies on them or anything else. There's there's all sorts of missing evidence right now about who these guys are that are being freed. As you said, the Afghan press has come up with some detailed or summary statistics on it, according to them, of who these guys are. They certainly sound bad, uh, but we don't have the specifics. And, you know, shouldn't we know if some of these guys are Al-Qaeda guys who are being you know, freed as part of this deal, uh, a deal that is being trumpeted by U.S. officials as this leading to supposed break between the Taliban and al-Qaeda. Well, if the Taliban is getting al-Qaeda guys out of jail, uh, what does that say about, uh, yet again, what does that say about this whole, the whole premise of this deal? It, they, they didn't just stick these guys' name on a list and ask them to be freed. Like in the case of Baluch, right? Like that was a, that was a campaign. I mean, they held out Indian hostages in order to get him released. They actively sought his release and others as well. So, yeah, this is, you know, it's just, but yep, this is supposed to be our effective counterterrorism partner. Now, why, you know, in the bigger picture, the the Afghans are trying, the Afghan government's trying to cut this deal, trying to negotiate with the Taliban for reasons you and I can't understand, right? The Taliban has been extremely clear. It will not accept a silly ministerial position. That's its own words. Um, because after fighting so many years, sacrificing so many years, it insists that the Afghan government is corrupt. It is illegitimate that the Afghan co- uh, constitution is illegitimate. Both of those uh, entities are um, un-Islamic, which is the biggest insult that the Taliban could hurl at um, at anyone, really, right? There's a, there's a whole, an entire... A movement based on its uh, its its religion and on its uh, uh, on its view towards uh, Allah. So if you're un-Islamic, that's as bad as it gets um, to the Taliban. So it's we know it's not going to do this. Why is the Afghan government expending all of this political capital, all of this energy, on trying to do something that's not going to work? I mean, really, what it ought to be doing is. It should be preparing for what happens when the U.S. Is le- leaves because the U.S. is leaving. The allies are leaving. We're down to we're going to be down to around 4,600 troops. And let's face it, at that point, um, I think even General Miller at one point said somewhere below 8,000. And really, we can't effectively run counterterrorism operations. So we're going to be down at 4,600. Uh, General Miller, of course, being the commander of uh, U.S. forces and resolute support in Afghanistan. Uh, so, you know, at some point, this is it's just not going to be tenable to stay. And yet the Afghan government's wasting all this energy, all this capital and trying to talk to the Taliban. What it really needs to be doing is preparing for the worst, preparing for what's going to happen next. The Taliban's going to take these 5000 guys. The, 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 the Afghan government's demanding that the Taliban ensure that the, these 5000 don't return the ballot. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, yeah. And the Taliban has said absolutely nothing because you know what else the Taliban did? Before this uh, lawyer, loyal jerga uh, got together, it denounced it. It said it's not legitimate. It's something dominated by the Afghan government, and therefore anything it says is um, is not worth anything. So you know, so you know, we have these demands being put on the Taliban by the Afghan government, but there's no enforcement, and um, 
Yeah, there's just nothing. So we're, you and I, Tom and I have been talking, you know, for a while now saying the Afghan government really needs to get its house in order, figure out who its real allies, foreign allies are, who's going to fund them, who's going to pr- provide them with weapon and ammunition and everything it needs to fight the Taliban. And what ground they can defend, you know, Where, what ground yes, they can't. Exactly. Consolidate its positions and how to carry the fight on against, because this fight's going to continue. The Taliban are using this negotiation process to run out the clock. The, the U.S. doesn't have to leave, isn't going to leave or the U.S. doesn't the, – the plan isn't the U.S. leaves once the Taliban has a peace deal with the Afghan government. It's once negotiations start, the Taliban's fulfilled its part of the U.S. deal. So the yeah, Taliban I mean, that, isn't that, – that, that speaks to how weak this deal really was. Yeah. I mean the, the only criteria the Taliban have to meet is they just have to sit down with the Afghan government and talk. And that, nothing no, not actually, even the Afghan government. Intra-Afghan well, talks, right. Intra-Afghan yeah, right. talks, which which <laughs> which the Khalilzad and others are portraying as the Afghan government, but actually is a broader yeah. sort of – but it will include the Afghan government. The Afghan it government would, will yes, include but that. But they're not but driving the is, at the talks. They can't right, walk they're away. Not, they're not the legitimate yeah. sovereign actor here. Yeah. you know. Um, and so basically – you know, the point is that they don't even have to talks don't even have to lead to an outcome, any outcome. They could yep. just just as long as they occur in some form, you know, you'll have Khalil Azad and Pompeo check that box and say, look, we're all good here, you know, and we're out. You know, and the, this is all the point to all this, as we've said, you've heard me say this over and over again. You've heard Bill say versions of this. There was no reason to absolve and legitimize the Taliban like this, absolve it of its ongoing terrorist ties to Al Qaeda and affiliated groups. Or, or legitimize them and treat them as a legitimate governing actor or a legitimate negotiating partner to get out of Afghanistan. The U.S. could have gotten out without any of this, right? And so none of this was necessary to, to get out, right? And you have a lot of people who just want to get out, okay? You didn't need to do any of this. And all this has done is really strengthen the Taliban's hand in various ways. And we don't see any evidence that the Taliban is changing its stripes or is going to lay down its change its political goals after all these years or anything else right there's nothing you know at this point in fact they're just springing al-qaeda guys from prison you know yeah and well go-team. all the while denying that al-qaeda even has a presence in the country right, right. so uh yeah this is this is as bad you know we've said it a million times and we'll say it again it's as bad a deal as possible and lest we you know again be accused of being warmongers tom and i Look, I think we've we've come to the conclusion that it's time to get out of Afghanistan, not because it's the smartest thing to do or that's the best strategy to take against Al Qaeda. It's because there's no support for it here in the United States anymore. And the worst thing a country a country can do is remain in a war that has no popular support. It's it, you know, however, we need to be clear eyed about what we're leaving behind. It's just a very slow motion loss. I mean, I wrote in yeah. 2018 that the war was over and the U.S. had lost this. It's not sugarcoated. And this thing is just taking forever to to, to yeah. cement the loss. You know, it's like the, I, it's like the it's like the final two minutes of the game are going on for about a decade. It's crazy. It's, you know, both so. the the Taliban and the U.S. have like a like five hundred timeouts each. It's like the end watching the end of a basketball game. That's a better know? analogy. Yeah, the basketball yeah, game. It's, yeah, it's it, trying to try shoot the one and one, and then it becomes a, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then they shoot the one and one, and then they get the two free throws. You know, the yeah. Taliban is just lapping up the free throws right now. You know, that's what all this is. <laughs> that's what all this is. So. Uh, but I mean, all this does, you know, they have, you know, even though they have all sorts of conspiratorial thinking, the Taliban does, you know, I've seen uh, when it comes to the Afghan war, I've seen all sorts of conspiracy thinking over the years, you know, that the, like the U.S. just, you know, you know, the war machine just wants to be in Afghanistan to keep it going. And, that, and that's part of, we talked about this previously in an episode about the endless wars rhetoric. That's part of what I object to in that, you know, I mean, you can be critical of the Afghan war and think we need to get out, but 
It's not like the U.S. is keeping the war going. The U.S. and the Afghan government have pleaded with the Taliban for a ceasefire. Yeah. They pleaded for they, yeah. It's the U.S. that said over and over again, U.S. military generals, U.S. politicians, U.S. political figures, the president, everybody has said they want to end the quote-unquote war. You know, that's not, you know, it's just the bottom line is the jihadis keep fighting. So uh, you can want to end the war all you want. They're not going to end their jihad, right? And they'll have, they'll invent all sorts of conspiracy theories to keep it going if they have to, in fact, you know? So. Absolutely. And my favorite conspiracy theory is Afghanistan is all about a war about oil, Tom. I mean, yeah. of all places in the world, you know, that oil producing nation yeah. of Afghanistan. We all know the millions of barrels today being exported. Yeah, exactly. The U.S. And went to Central Asia. Yeah. Even if, it, that, even if it did, the U.S. doesn't even need the oil anymore. I mean, it hasn't for quite quite a long time, you know. So I think we'll we'll wrap it up there. We think Bill is sort of short August episode. Um, you know, there's a lot going on. We're gonna we're gonna record more episodes. I think you know going forward, I'd like to transition if we can to a video format. What do you think? So you can see some of our colorful video, uh, colorful facial expressions. You can see me sort of uh, smirking at stuff and Bill. You know, looking at me when he uses a naughty word or whatever, or, 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 or Bill starts talking about going under the covers again. Ooh, no, Bill, stop under the covers. You know, and you can see, you know, sort of our exchange on that. Uh, you can also see the glorious confines of our housing that we live in. You know, you can see me up in uh, sort of the loft area of my home where I record, which is basically a glorified attic. Uh, you know, it's sort of very stuffy, but uh, you know, hey, it's cozy. Uh, and, and you can see Bill in your, wherever you're in your mountain retreat there, Bill. Is that where you are today? I am right now, yes. Yeah, son of a bitch. Listen, uh, uh, Tom, if they could stand my face, then we'll do we'll do video. Like I always say, I have a voice for print and a face for radio. So let's do it. Well, you just got to just gotta put up with my New York uh, sports gear because that's why I wear doing this <laughs> stuff. So as long as you don't mind seeing Giants hats and Yankees hats, which I know you don't like, Bill. You're a Philly guy. So as long as people don't like mind seeing that stuff. We can transition to video, but also, you know, we're also going to get some, if we do the video stuff, we can show you guys some of the merch we hope to have coming down the line here. Um, we can show you some other stuff. Hopefully we'll have some guests on video as well. So we can see their facial expressions and how they react to certain things. We've definitely got to, we're definitely planning over the next several months to line up more guests. We're sort of in this lull here for the summer, trying to close out August um, before we get ramped up again for the fall. We're going to be doing a lot more. You know, I'll, I'll do this again because it'll make Phil happy. If you can go give us that five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, that'd be wonderful. Um, again, I don't even have Apple Podcasts, but apparently it's very good for you to give us a five-star rating. We appreciate it. Um, we're going to have more content for you again soon here. But thank you once again for listening to this week's episode of Generation Jihad. Please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your show. So you just need to bleep out the naughty words that Bill likes to use. And we'll see you again next week. Bye.